0: Good morning, everyone. (laughs) It's always interesting to see what we have to do to edit the podcast to uh, take little things out. If you're watching online or you'll be listening to this podcast a little later, it is the first Sunday of December as Crosspoint is finishing a journey through the book of James. Congratulations, everybody. We made it. I wonder... What you do to cope. 21st century phrase that I've learned recently. Coping mechanism. Have you heard it? I'm reading all the time. Sometimes just for pure enjoyment. Other times for personal or pastoral development. And I keep seeing this phrase. Coping mechanism. Coping mechanism. Coping mechanism. So I looked it up. And everyone I read that's kind of in a field that might discuss such a thing says that coping mechanisms are things that people do in response to pressure, suffering, pain, stress in their life. If you really want to get geeky with it, some mental health professionals say there are defense mechanisms... And those are things that are so much in you because of your character, your temperament, your learned responses, just who you are and how you've learned to be. A defense mechanism is something you're probably not even aware of. It's just something that you do when the pressure's on. If you want more awareness of what that might be, even if you don't know you're doing it, I have good news. If you're married, you can ask, and they will certainly tell you (laughs) what your defense mechanisms are. Coping mechanisms are different. Coping mechanisms are the things you choose to do in response to that discomfort. So, the first service, candidly, was uncooperative, and I'm hoping to get more cooperation from you, okay? I don't mean to be critical. I love them. I love all three of our services alike, different as they are, but they were uncooperative. I want to elicit right from the front side your cooperation. Will you please cooperate? See, this is why I love the 1030, (laughs) enthusiasm. I want you to find your notes and trusting that you will have the most rare kind of awareness, which is self-awareness, just write down on the top of the sheet what you do, that you know you do as a coping mechanism when things get hard for you, okay? Do you binge watch Netflix? Do you engage in retail therapy? Do you enrich the Haagen-Dazs Corporation? Do you go for a walk? Do you reach out to friends? Do you exercise? What is it that you do? Got it? We're at the end of the book of James, and James is going to tie a few things together that he's been talking about for five chapters. And he's going to talk to the suffering community he's been writing to in this letter about how they should cope, because everybody suffers. Pressure is a reality for all of us. One of the most interesting things about being a pastor and being a confidant to people is the continual lesson that people that you think have it all figured out and have the most blissful Instagram-worthy life imaginable actually have it hard just like you do. And that everybody's going through their own pain, everybody's going through their own suffering. The first people who read the book of James, because it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us, it was written to people in the first century, Jewish believers in Christ, Jewish Christians, who had been scattered and persecuted because of their trust in Jesus. So from the very first words of his letter, James talks to this suffering, persecuted, scattered community about how they should respond to trials. And he's going to go back there now. If you look with me in the last paragraph of the book of James, James chapter 5 and verse 13 He's going to talk to us as individuals, and He's also going to talk to us as a community. There are things that we should be doing individually, and there are things that we should be doing as a community, as a church family, if we're truly going to act like Christians. Here's how we're supposed to cope. James says, James chapter 5, verse 13, "...is anyone among you suffering?" So this was written to us. We're not the original recipients, but it was written for us. We were intended to read it. It was written for our instruction. It was written to tell us what to do. So let James ask you, is anyone among you suffering? How about it? Are you? Some of you really are. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Two very different circumstances in life. James says if some of you happen to be suffering, you should do what? Pray. Some of you are going, the pain has eased. You're going through a sweet season. You find yourself in the sweet spot. Is anyone cheerful? Let him do what now? Sing praise. Whose praises? Your own? sing songs about yourself? No. Here's what James has in mind. In good times or bad, what James wants Christians to do is turn to God. The first thing that James tells us is, we turn to God whether times are happy or whether times are hard. A Christian, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus is someone who is continually turning to God. Whether you find yourself in that sweet spot of blessing or you're being ground down by adversity and suffering, the only Christian response, the only thing a disciple of Jesus, the only only thing that someone who has trusted Jesus as Savior and boss, who came by the grace of God to know that Jesus lived among us suffered all of our weaknesses and all of our temptations, but unlike us, Jesus faced all of that without sin. So he died in our place, and he's not only our Lord, he's our friend and our Savior and our substitute. Now we're in the family of God because what Jesus has done for us, James says, whatever season of life you're in, happy or sad, difficult or wonderful, you should be turning to God all the time. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. And those two short little questions with their quick little instructions made me wonder again this week something I've pondered for years as a pastor. And that is this, whether blessing or adversity ruins more Christians. And really, the jury's out. I first started noticing it in my 20s. That in some cases, suffering, continual pain and trial grinds some Christians down, makes them distrust God, grow embittered, stop turning to God. They no longer pray. They've just given up hope. They're hollow. And what faith they have is just a remnant of what it once was. But much more, to my surprise... I've met so many other people, I don't know, I haven't kept track, but perhaps more people who have been blessed with everything they ever could have asked for, and things they didn't even pray for, and the very success and blessing that God lavished into their life made them forget about God. Have you known anyone like that? That's what James says, whatever happens to you, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful and happy, Sing praises, always turn back to God with all your pains and troubles, or with all your words of thanks and praise, always be turning back to God. What you do in good times and bad says a great deal about you. It doesn't change anything about God, it just reveals where you are. Then it gets flat out communal. He starts talking to us as a church. And these next few lines are so countercultural; they will seem taken from something that is so far removed from our experience that you will be tempted to just kind of ignore them. I don't know if you've ever had that experience with the Bible. You're reading along, but it just seems so far removed from your experience or from your time or anything that could possibly relate to the world that you live in that you just kind of spiritually shrug your shoulders and keep on reading. Please don't do that. This speaks to us as a church. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. The elders of the church, that's one of three terms that the New Testament uses for pastors, for church leaders. Those elders and pastors or shepherds and also overseers. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what's that about? Remember, this is the first letter written in the New Testament. James probably wrote this in the 40s. James is a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish Christians. The only thing written of Scripture in this time is the Old Testament. James very clearly has in mind what you and I call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he remembers that in the Old Testament, people were set aside in dedication and service to God, and they were anointed with oil. This is such a strange phrase that even some Bible scholars don't know what to make of it. Some will say this is mainly medicinal, it's kind of therapeutic, You maybe rub a sick person with oil, put oil on their scalp, rub it in, maybe it'll make them feel better. I think there's much more here than that. I think we're at the juncture between a very Jewish Christianity and James reading the Hebrew Scriptures, knowing the Hebrew Scriptures, is drawing from them, and remembering a time in Israel's history when people set aside for God were publicly anointed with oil. And that was to remind them of God's presence and to Picture God's blessing. Now, the leaders of the Christian church are doing that, and look what happens. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's so countercultural, even though I've been a pastor for a long time, I've only participated in this biblical instruction just a few times in my life. Most of them here in California, rather than Latin America, believe it or not. Now, I want you to see this seems to be, Can James is explaining, he seems to be taking a lot for granted that the first readers are going to understand exactly what he's talking about, so he's not explaining it in the depth, perhaps, that we would want in 2019. But this looks like a person who is very gravely ill because the elders come to him. They pray over him, and then it says, who will raise him up? Here's where you read your Bibles. Look carefully at the text. Who's going to to raise him up? The Lord Lord will raise him up. Not the elders. There's apparently no one coming with the gift of healing. Ordinary church leaders are coming together to remind him of the presence of God, pray over him, and then in response to that trusting faith, that prayer in God that James used to start the letter… The Lord will raise him up, and if that person has sinned, what's going to happen? He'll be, He'll be forgiven. God's going to heal him and restore him in every way. And I thank God for it. In my years of life, I've had almost completely unblemished good health. But there was a time when we were missionaries that my wife became very, very sick. Sick enough that she told me goodbye. Goodbye and I learned something about serious illness whether it's yours or someone you love very much it makes you look deep inside yourself and straight up to God and deal with the matter of sin I ask many God over an agonizing two weeks is what is happening to her in any way my fault is this me Is she suffering because of something I've done? And if so, please, Lord, forgive me. Now, this little passage in James can bring up all kinds of questions. Because as we know, not everyone is healed. I've had it both ways. We've prayed earnestly as a church leadership for someone to be raised up in the name of Jesus. And they have been sometimes in a way that actually deserves the word miracle. Other times we've said goodbye to them, watched the Lord take them to glory. So James is not saying that this is a promise of immortality that all illness will always be healed so that someone lives forever. But he's driving at something that I think is countercultural It's countercultural to the human heart to continually be turning to God. That every blessing received makes you say something better and more than cool. I got it. Earned it. Killed it. About time. No, everything that makes you cheerful, James says, should make you turn to God and do what? Praise Him. Every instance of suffering should make you turn to God and do what? Pray to Him. So we should turn to God whether times are happy or hard, and number two, we turn together for healing, James says. We turn to God together for healing so that in times of great illness, the elders should pray for the sick, and together we can witness something that God has done. Now, last week, I was with one of our ministry partners overseas in a very difficult place. And all we can do in these instances, those of us who are come from a country as rich and education as good as ours, all we can bring our biblical content and maybe some pastoring skills. That's all we train, content and skills, because these guys... They've got the godly character figured out. It's humbling to be in the presence of such leaders that suffer so much, live so close to the physical edge. And comparing their life and mine made me think a lot about this passage because I prepared this sermon while I was over there. And it made me think about this. Where I was, one of our hosts had injured his leg. And they couldn't do anything for him because there's no x ray film to be had in the country. And it made me think as I read this passage over and over again I wonder if we don't pray for healing because we think we don't need to. We don't pray as much because we have so much more. I don't know. I just want to put it out there for your consideration. Because what I saw over there, I think, mirrors what was happening in the first century. In the first century, when James is living, when your eyes start to go bad, guess what? You're going to be blind. There's no eyeglasses. You're not popping over to CVS to buy the $7 readers. No one's going to cut your eyes with lasers to give you your sight back as if you were 12 years old all again. They're not replacing joints, they're not putting spines back together, they're not treating brain injuries, they're laying you in a bed and hoping that's the first century plan for the most part. Injury and illness was the end of it. So what does James say? When one of you is seriously sick, look up to God and seek God together. Bring the elders together. Remember the presence of God and pray together for that person to be healed. And in doing so, you'll be conscious of sin and sin will be forgiven. And it's not just the elders. Here comes some more countercultural, challenging stuff from the Bible. Look please in verse 16, therefore confess your sins, what's it say? To one another. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is where the Catholic doctrine of confession to a priest came from but i want you to see with all respect that that's not in context what james has in mind he didn't advise the christian community to go to one appointed leader and to confess their sins to him collectively he said as you live together and endure blessing and endure enjoy blessing and endure suffering what you are to do together is confess your sins to did you catch the phrase one another. You keep short accounts with one another and you pray for one another and there's an effect, James says, and together you will be healed, I think, in every respect, both physically and spiritually. Why is that so countercultural? Because the persecution of being a small community of people who loved Jesus in the first century, generally speaking, pushed Christians closer together. In the United States, at least, 2,000 years later, there are so many of us that rather than create community, I fear what we've often cultivated instead is just a customer base. Let me explain. Without naming names, because I hope they recover, my favorite pizza joint has really been dropping the ball the last three times we've gone there. If you've gone there recently, and I named the spot, and I don't because it's a mom-and-pop kind of place, and I want the local places to make it, and we all have bad days, you catch me on my best day, on a bad day, you think, man, that guy's lost it. Are you sure he's a pastor? (laughs) Three straight times we've gone to this place, and it's been a little disappointing because I've been going there on and off since I was in college. My kids were raised on this pizza and I don't know if the guy hired his nephew who, you know, couldn't do anything else with his life. I don't know what's going on at the pizza joint but they are really messing it up. Why am I telling you all this? Because I'm not going to have a conversation with the guy. I'm not going to try to reconcile with the pizza man. We just had a family meeting after the third bad pizza and said, you know, maybe we shouldn't order from them anymore. (laughs) Why is that? Because we're just customers. They say hi, we speak in Spanish for a couple minutes, it's great. But there's no community there. It's just a product and payment. What happens in the Christian church if we're not careful? You get sideways to someone, someone upsets you, someone disappoints you, you say to yourself, eh, not what it used to be, I'm out of here. That's not community. That's not family. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus never had in mind putting little franchises together of people who would preach about him and try to draw as many customers to themselves so that the customer base could move from place to place until it no longer pleased them. Jesus had something much higher, much holier, much better in mind. He died and rose again to create a family of brothers and sisters who live for him and live for each other. And as John said, having received the life of Jesus on their behalf, they lay down their lives for one another. And what that's going to take if we're really going to have community is mutual confession of sin and mutual prayer. And only you, the congregation, can do that. Only you can keep short accounts with one another. Only you can bear with one another in love. Only you can overlook offenses. Only you can muster up the humble courage to say to a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you've hurt me. You've offended me. You've disappointed me. And to work that out so that we can experience what James is talking about here. Look again in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then a very encouraging sentence that should be underlined in your Bible and memorized. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working who's that? Is that a special kind of person? Not at all. That's anyone who has placed their trust in Christ. Because the announcement of the gospel is not that you have to be good enough for God. The announcement of the gospel is that Jesus was. That He's traded your sin for His righteousness. That He's brought you into His family. That you already enjoy a position in Christ that is matchless. And the point of discipleship, the part of community, the part of prayer, and all the things we do together as a family of faith, if I could illustrate, your position in Christ is matchless. It's never changing. You're as righteous as Jesus himself is from God's point of view because Jesus paid for all of it and God gave it all to you. What's the point of discipleship to slowly, with obedience and love and worship and forgiveness and all the things that the Bible teaches you to do in following Jesus slowly, bit by bit, your practice more closely matches your position. You'll never be done on this side of glory, but you can get much closer. And maybe you've had the blessing of meeting someone who was genuinely holy, who was genuinely loving, who was truly gracious, and they reminded you of the goodness of Jesus Himself. You've met someone who has dedicated themselves to the Lord. We have a lot of people like that in this church family. And of them, of people who enjoy that position in Christ, James says, James 5 The last sentence in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Then he gives a very surprising example. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Remember that. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He's giving you an example of prayer. And who's the example? Elijah. Ordinary normal guy, right? If you haven't read his story, write it down, read it later, 1 Kings 17. Beside Moses, perhaps the most miraculous man in the Old Testament. He's already telling you, Elijah prayed and the skies dried up for how long? Three years and a half. And where did all this happen? See, 9 o'clock service had the same problem. Was this all in Costa Mesa or or (laughs) up in Los Gatos? So where, where was all this happening in Elijah's life? Where was he again? He was in Israel. What was the climate like up there? Hot, oppressively hot in the summer. No irrigation, entirely dependent upon rainfall. So Elijah prays in a desert climate in the rebuke of wicked King Ahab. He prays, and for three and a half years, the Lord answers with drought. And then Elijah says, I'll pray again. And it rains, and it pours, and the earth revives and gives its fruit again. So you read 1 Kings 17, and you read that, and you think to yourself, I'm not in that class. I mean, Elijah's Elijah. If there were any kind of Avengers-like group of Old Testament heroes that could be summoned, probably Elijah's got to be among them. This is the guy who prays and the weather turns on and off. But did you notice the first part of verse 17? What's it say? Elijah was a man with a nature, what? Like ours. Is that in the Bible too? It is. Because in the moment of his greatest victory, and you can visit that place in Israel today, Elijah stood alone against hundreds of wicked priests from a false and bloody God, and God vindicated him and showed his own righteousness by answering that man's prayers with miracles. But then a woman spoke, Jezebel, and one threat from that woman made Elijah do what hundreds of men could not compel him to do. It struck him with fear, and he ran for his life, and he hid in the wilderness. And because he had a nature like mine and like yours, he said after his greatest success, God, I'm all alone. You may as well kill me. See, when we talk about coping mechanisms in the 21st century, the reason for that is everyone who studies this says that we are undergoing a time of greater anxiety and mental health issues and spiritual and emotional stress unlike the which our nation has never seen. So James says, every one of you, when you're suffering Turn to God. When the pressure is off and God is blessing you and you find your, ha- your heart cheerful, you turn to God again when life is really bad and life is about to end, you call for the leaders of your church. They'll remind you of the presence of God. They will pray to God for you, and not because of them, but because the Lord is good. The Lord will raise you up, and you will have forgiveness of your sins and healing of your body. And church, don't wait for it to be that dire. Be in the continual practice of mutual confession and prayer, which at cross point should be normal. And all of this, uh, James says, is tied to prayer. Why is there so much talk about prayer so that we would be reminded of something very simple but easily forgotten that ordinary people do extraordinary things through prayer? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed, what? Fervently. Fervently, earnestly. And I don't want to get too geeky. I just have two more little geeky tidbits for you. To pray earnestly, to pray fervently is great. That's a wonderful Greek translation. But what it literally says in Greek, it says this praying, he prayed. And idiomatically, The Greek translator, knowing how Greek is used in the first century, says that that means he was serious about it. He was committed. He was earnest. He was fervent about it. But listen to it again because it makes a very simple and practical point. Even though Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, depressive, given to despairing thoughts, who quickly lost perspective, and after enjoying the greatest victory any man could have, That success was followed by a depression so deep he falsely thought thought he was all alone and asked God to kill him. In spite of all that, with a nature like ours, here's Elijah's secret. Praying, he prayed. In other words, he just prayed. Do you know what the best way to pray is? This is going to astound you the best way to pray is simply to to pray. I just wonder, no guilt trip. I didn't take the exercise, so I'm not judging you. I wonder how many of you put prayer at the top of your coping list. I'm speaking as a fellow struggler because I'd be embarrassed to tell you how often prayer is not my first reaction. Something will happen, My wife, God helper, God lover, is looking at me, and I'm sending text messages, I'm making calls, I'm networking, I'm asking Jim Gain if he knows a guy, because Jim Gain almost always does, and if he doesn't, Gregory Pierce certainly does. In other words, I'm busy, I'm doing, I'm working, I'm efforting. And then my sweet wife says, Bruce, have you prayed about this? And I think, you know, that'd be a great idea. I should probably actually pray about this. That sounds like a very fundamental, biblical, and Christian thing for a pastor to do. (laughs) Why don't we pray? Because we have so much. Because we forget to turn to God. Because when the good times come, we think they will last forever, and when the suffering comes, we think it's the end and none of that is right. We should always be in the process of turning to God. That's what Elijah wants us to do. That's what James is teaching us to do, that we would all be turning to God. And then he closes, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, And someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's be honest. Don't you think that's an odd way to end this letter? I'm reading it for weeks. And I'm just always struck by how abrupt this ending is. He's talking about persecuted people, and the first thing he told them, if you remember, way back in the first chapter is, when you're suffering, you find yourself in need of wisdom, pray. And if you pray trusting God, He'll give you wisdom generously and without reproach. He's tying it all back together, and here at the end, he says, if the suffering is great... You turn to God in prayer. If things are good, you turn to God in praise. If it's gotten so bad that it might kill you, come together as a community and seek the Lord. And then he says, some of you might wander off from the faith. And I realized that what I thought at first was a really, really abrupt ending to a wonderful letter is the wisdom of God itself. Because suffering makes people wander away from the faith. And I want you to see, James doesn't give an instruction. He gives a blessing. If any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins And that's really countercultural because unless we're very careful and very Christian, what we we will create is a culture of consumers, clients, customers, not a genuine community. Because what a genuine community does is they go after people, not to pursue them and to stalk them, but to lovingly bring them back. I'm not reconciling with the pizza guy because I'm just his customer. We're not friends. No ill toward Him. Either way, I'm sure, but we really don't know each other. It's been about 20 years of 20 bucks across the counter. That's the extent of the relationship. Please do not treat the Church of Jesus Christ in that way. Because the reason so many people are needing coping mechanisms, the reason I'm convinced from reading, from experience, and from listening to people for the last five years... The reason so many of us are in trouble in this country is because where Christ invited us and gave us community, what we've created instead is deep loneliness. And it is the epidemic of the 21st century. And listen, I'll close. The Church of Jesus Christ should not duplicate the thing that is killing American souls. No one here should be lonely. You see, some of you, not all of you, but many of you, have friendships so deep, have brothers and sisters that you've intentionally cultivated in this church that God has given to you because of His great love. You have relationships that are so good and so strong that you really do act like family. I've seen it beautifully expressed in the last seven days. The short time I've been back from this challenging little trip, I saw people who have no blood relationship but belong to Jesus treat each other in a way that most families would admire. That's what we're after. We don't want any single person who is part of Crosspoint to ever say, I'm lonely. I have no friends here. And if we've created a culture and I've contributed to a situation where it's hard to get to know us and it's hard to make friends here, please hear me say, I read these closing words from the book of James inviting us individually and as a church in good times and bad, literally in sickness and in health, in the greatest blessings and the greatest, most life-threatening trials to collectively turn to God, and that's what we need Not people who will file in and file out and leave easily when things no longer please them, but a genuine family of faith that seeks God together. Here's the last geeky thing. Are you familiar with the phrase carpe diem? What's it mean? Seize the day. People put it on t-shirts, put it on macho bumper stickers on the back of their Prius. It's weird. I would think it would be hard to truly seize the day in a Prius, but, you know, people are out there trying. I drive a Civic, no judgment, okay? I haven't had a macho car in, well, ever. Um, (laughs) Mr. Minivan, Mr. 98 Camry, okay? So no judgment, but everybody knows the phrase carpe diem. It means to seize the day. Let me teach you a better phrase. It's also Latin. It's not found in the Bible, but it's written for centuries by people who loved the Lord and studied His Word. Ready? Coram Deo. C-O-R-A-M, new word, D-E-O, Coram Deo. What it means is in the presence of God or before the face of God. And just like Carpe Diem tells you this is the day you have, go out and get it, Coram Deo is a more humbling admonition. It reminds us individually as Christians and us as a Christian community that every moment we live is lived in the presence of God. We're living, as it were, in His face, right in His sight And if you can keep that in mind, it will give you hope when you suffer because when you begin to suffer, you will remember that the eyes of the Lord are ever on you and you will turn to Him and say, Father, here's my trouble, here's my struggle, I will pray. I'm depressed and despairing like Elijah. I am losing sight of life, but I will pray. And because you're in the sight of your Heavenly Father and you remember that He has more kids aside from you, he has other people that he's brought into the family. You will look not only up to him, but you will look around to the family of God and you will say to one another and when needed in dire situations, two church leaders say, come and pray with me, stand with me. These are my sins. This is the trouble I have with you. This is the suffering. This is the blessing. And together we will enjoy. What James is inviting us to do is that we should be turning to God at all times. Please, cross point. Let's turn to God, and let's do it together. Whatever comes, we're going to need each other to stay on this journey, so let's keep turning to God, and because we're His kids, let's do it together. Let's pray. Can I give you just a moment individually to put into practice what James said? Are you suffering? Turn to Him in prayer. Are you blessed and happy? Turn to Him and give Him praise. Are you in need of Christ? Do you have the assurance that the righteousness of Jesus dying on the cross is already yours? If not, the prayer that God wants to hear from you and the prayer He will certainly answer from you is for you to tell God Almighty in whose presence you live, I'm sorry for my sins. I've sinned, I've fallen, I've rebelled, I've ignored you, God. Please forgive me. Give me the righteousness of Jesus instead. Please save me. If you do that, please find the card on your bulletin. Let us know. If you have questions, if you have doubts, I understand that. I once did myself. Let us know. And let's commit that we're going to walk in the sight of our Father together. Father, thank you for this journey through this little portion of your word. Loneliness will always stalk us here, Lord, in 21st century America. Make us a community instead. May we never behave like customers. May we always behave like family. And if there's a single person here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray that right now, In humility, they would turn to you, Jesus, and ask you to save them. Thank you, Lord. May we always be turning to you. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you, folks. A lot of people here. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. I'm walking through that door right there to a little room right across the little walkway here where I have coffee and donuts. I'd love to meet you. God bless.